it's going to be quite a year and quite a show today. We've got, we've we've had a little break and thank you to everyone who's filled the seats. Much appreciated. It was nice to have a little break from the studio here, but rearing to go for 2018. That's right. And later in the show, we'll be speaking to Bob Phelps from Gene Ethics, and he's going to tell us about some of the things we need to be aware of coming up this year and uh, some processes that are still underway as well. So he's going to draw our attention to those signs of things. And Associate Professor Mehmet Ozalp from Charles Sturt University will be on, and he's going to talk about uh, the announcement yesterday that the U.S. is going to have a border force in Syria, which is uh, quite fascinating, really. I think, um, you know, Russia and Turkey and uh, Assad thought they had it all sewn up mm. in Syria. So this is throwing a big spanner in the works. So we'll hear more about that. Looking forward to that. Before before we get there, we're going to have Amy Madden coming in, who's the general manager for the Australian Theatre for Young People. They recently put together a study um, highlighting the importance for theatre engagement for the young and with drawing out mental illness and community engagement yeah, as a healthy activity. Really, really interesting. Theatre is such a powerful vehicle for doing lots of good things. It is. And on that theatrical note, we will have um, Danny Weber coming in to talk about the Cocoa Butter Club, which is opening this Friday at the Arts Centre in I Melbourne. I saw that. I saw yeah, that. It looks like the, such a great show. Mm, for the Midsummer Festival, which is happening. It started on the January the 14th, if I'm not mistaken. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that. But, you know, right now... We have already a guest in the studio. So Tim Wright, who's from ICAM, welcome to the studio, Tim. Thanks very much. And uh, Tim arrived right on time, bright and early, so that's that's great. It is. Thank you, Tim. It's good to see you. Um, some listeners might be familiar with your voice. You've been on the show before, haven't you? I have, yes. I was on last year, I think during the negotiations of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which mm. has now been adopted. Yes. Which and was uh, huge news for 2017. Look, it was so exciting. I mean, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still excited about it. It was just amazing. And, uh, and having watched the ceremony as well, the Nobel Prize ceremony, um, it was just so moving. It was so clear about how important this is. So mm, It was a nice way to finish the year. Wasn't it just? <laughs> so now I guess it's, it's kind of coming down to the work. Mm-hmm. Right, that we need I can make this going... treaty work. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. So that's why we invited Tim in this morning to hear more about that. But I just want to start, Tim. You're the campaign manager of ICANN. Is that for Australia? Uh, I'm the Asia Pacific director. As- okay, thank mm-hmm. you for for clarifying that. Asia Pacific director. So I'm just curious about what a day in your life looks like at work. Oh, there's no normal day uh, at my work. Um, I mean, last year we spent a lot of time uh, just negotiating the the treaty, um, which was a huge task. Uh, We put forward strong arguments for why certain provisions should be included, uh, why certain things should be left out. So, Um, for example? Well, um, we wanted to make sure that the treaty captured all of the kinds of activities that we felt needed to be prohibited, Um, So not just the use of nuclear weapons, but also the threat of use. Um, And we were very happy that 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 word, uh, threat, was included uh, in the final version adopted. Um, And also that the treaty prohibited all kinds of assistance-related activities. So a country can't assist another country to produce nuclear weapons or possess nuclear weapons. And that was very important for 
uh, a country like Australia, which is uh, involved uh, in many ways in kind of propping up the nuclear weapon apparatus, but doesn't actually uh, possess nuclear weapons of its own. Um, so we felt that the treaty could have a major impact that way. Um, but you know, we've spent a lot of time going around uh, talking to people about this new treaty, uh, talking to the media, just getting the word out there that it exists and that we need countries to support it. Uh, we've been meeting with politicians, um, getting them to sign our parliamentary pledge, which is a kind of formal commitment to work to get Australia uh, on board. That sounds like such a very good idea. Yeah, well, I mean, our parliamentary pledge have many have many signed it. Yeah, it's it's been quite um, positive the response, uh, not from the government but from the Labor Party and the Greens, um, and globally we've had about six hundred parliamentarians sign it, and most of them are in countries that are refusing to join the treaty. So this is a way of kind of showing that uh, the position of those countries as put forward at the United Nations isn't uh, universally supported uh, within those countries. That's very, that's very interesting to hear. Mm. Yeah. And, is it, and is, do you see that as a good way to hold them accountable, say, if they were to get into to a position of power, to then look at this treaty and say, you've signed this, and then to say, I think you need to campaign and work towards... Absolutely. Well... I, uh, I don't think we'll have this government in Australia for too much longer. Um, so uh, we're very much uh, looking to the Labor Party to make a clear pre-election commitment that they'll sign the treaty as soon as they uh, form government. We don't have that yet, but we do have about two-thirds of all of the federal Labor parliamentarians have signed the pledge. Um, so that's impressive, but uh, shorten. Uh, needs to commit, and so does uh, Penny Wong, the foreign affairs spokesperson for Labor. Okay, well, that brings us up to date on where we are uh, here in Australia at the moment around that. What about the international treaty itself? Kind of, I know that there were several processes. There was one in July, I think, where over 120 countries signed on, and then there was um, a process in September as well, um, which was a more formal process process at the UN. Please clarify. Yeah, it's quite complicated. So uh, basically in uh, July, the treaty was adopted, which was uh, a simple vote by all the world's countries or mo most of the world's countries. We had uh, 122 uh, vote in favour of adopting the treaty. Uh, Australia wasn't present for that vote. Um, and following that, the treaty then opens for signature, um, which is uh, when world leaders get together and um, yeah, it's kind of quite ceremonial. And, uh, and so had, that, was it, that was the just September process. Yeah, and we had on the very first day uh, 50 presidents, prime ministers and foreign ministers sign the treaty. So we, we were very happy with that. Um, we've got a lot more work to do. So, so when does it become actual international law, if that's the right yes, word? Yes, so this is, the, this is our challenge now, is to get the treaty entered into legal force. Mm. Um, and to do that, we need uh, 50 ratifications. So ah. ratification is the second step after signature. Um, and this, for most countries, involves a parliamentary process. Uh, so it needs to be approved either formally by the parliament itself or by some kind of parliamentary committee. Um, and, yeah, this takes time and it takes effort. Um, and we're, 
we so far have four countries that have ratified uh, and the fourth uh, was done today. This morning. This morning. Uh, wow. Just a few hours ago, Mexico. Everybody listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news. Mexico has ratified the treaty. Um, Fantastic. And it's really impressive because a country like Mexico um, has had a long-standing uh, policy in support of nuclear disarmament. But you know, it's easy to see how a country like Mexico could go in the opposite direction. Well, um, yes. You know, there's a country to their north that has about 7,000 nuclear weapons. Um, yes. And instead of uh, descending to that level, uh, Mexico has um, yes. taken a principled position against these weapons. So at this stage, it's not quite international law. No. Um, so the treaty exists, but it's not in legal force. Yes, okay. So the ex very existence of the treaty, will that make a difference? Well, we've already seen um, in some ways that it's having an impact. Um, one example is that just a couple of weeks ago, the largest pension fund in the Netherlands divested from nuclear weapon companies. Now, our campaigners there have been calling on them to do that for a number of years. Um, and it's only now that the treaty's been adopted that they felt compelled to do that. Um, and we're talking about over a billion dollars worth of investments. Um, that decision to divest that amount of money isn't going to uh, force these companies to end their involvement in nuclear weapon production, but it sets an example for other pension funds and other financial institutions to do the same. And if we get a whole lot of them to do it, including here in Australia, um, that could have a profound impact. So so who produces nuclear weapons? I mean, so divesting means you're not investing your funds, our funds often, in the nuclear industry. So what are the companies and what are the countries that are actually producing nuclear weapons? Yeah, so all nine nuclear-armed nations are actively modernising their nuclear arsenals. Um, some of those countries involve uh, private companies in the um, nuclear weapon modernisation activities. And so what we're um, calling for is financial institutions around the world to essentially blacklist those companies that are involved in that work, which is now basically illegal uh, under international law or will soon be illegal under international law. So are these companies solely based in the countries that have a nuclear weapons industry or is the trail a bit longer than that? Most of them are. Um, there are a few outside nuclear-armed uh, countries. Uh, there's one in the Netherlands uh, and one in Italy. Um, in the report that we are involved in producing, together with our partner PAX, um, which is called Don't Bank on the Bomb, we identify 27 com companies uh, that are heavily involved in nuclear weapon modernization activities. Mm -hmm. And so up to this point, it has been pretty profitable for companies to and hedge funds to put their money into these companies? Um, yeah, the, there's a lot of money to be made from weapons and war. Um, and and even nuclear war, it has nuclear weapons, or they're companies that have a large portfolio. In yeah, it's difficult for us to estimate exactly how much is spent on nuclear weapons, but it's probably well over $100 billion a year. Um, 
the US is spending the most. Um, even under the Obama administration, it um, it uh, spent you know, vast amounts on modernising uh, all three components of the US nuclear arsenal. So we're talking about the um, the land-based missiles, uh, the bomber aircraft, and the nuclear-armed submarines. Um, and so improvements to those kind of delivery systems, as they call them, um, as well as the modernization of the warheads themselves. Right. So this is why uh, one of the reasons I think that uh, ICANN received the Nobel Peace Prize is to reinvigorate this activity against um, nuclear weapons. I think sometimes people uh, become complacent about what it is. I mean, the Obviously, many people have been affected, you know, from the most obvious being Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the nuclear testing in the Pacific and in Australia has also been devastating. I mean, why, why would people want to continue to develop these weapons when, you know, I think in, the 19, in 1970 there was a decision to de-escalate. Why is this still happening? Yeah, our whole campaign has really focused on uh, highlighting the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons and um, returning that uh, that focus to the debate about what these weapons actually do to people and the environment instead of just having endless, um, very kind of abstract discussions about security and geopolitics. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, this this discussion often happens in this really kind of abstract way and what what we aren't aren't realizing often is actually the human like the individual cost you know at mm-hmm. that individual level and i think that's one of the things that uh, ICANN has done very well is bring you know the voices of people who have been affected uh, Karina Lester for example and uh, also uh, people who have been survivors in Japan so the human side of it is often missing yeah well in the lead up to the negotiating conference we uh, c- with a civil society partner for three major intergovernmental conferences, um, which involved about 180 countries. Um, and uh, we had scientific experts talk about the, um, the immediate impacts of a nuclear detonation, as well as the broader climate impacts that would result from all of the soot. Oh, absolutely. And... I mean, the, you know, the climate, I mean, be able to grow vegetables. I mean, all look at what, ha- what happened at Chernobyl, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's a, there's a great uh, degree of urgency to what we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. We can't wait for nuclear weapons to be used again before we act to get rid of them. And the incident just this weekend in Hawaii really shows the... Can you just remind listeners that, you know, people have been on holidays mm. and probably a bit away from the news, <laughs> deliberately so. So can you just remind us what happened in Hawaii? Yeah, so basically um, they've got a system in place where they can alert the public when um, a missile, an incoming missile is detected. Um, well, what happened was uh, the person who's in control of the system pressed the wrong button and the text was sent out to um, yeah, most of the residents in like Hawaii. Like to my mobile phone if I were living there? Yeah, yeah, saying incoming missile, this is not a drill, um, oh. this is for real and you know, it created panic of course. People were sending messages to their relatives saying goodbye 
Um, this is you know, essentially believing that this was the last time they'd be communicating with each other. And there was no place to hide, I understand. There were, like, they don't have bomb shelters. I mean, how, you know, how mad that we're even talking about bomb shelters mm-hmm. again. You know, you know, back in the 60s, people talked about bomb shelters. Yeah. And there's a lot more of that talk now since the weekend and, um, you know, the need to kind of educate the public about what they should do in the event of a nuclear attack. Well, I think what we really need to be doing is uh, renewing the call for disarmament. Um, not... I mean, if anything illustrated it more clearly, I think that mm. that situation and the, the, how easy it is for someone to push the wrong button. Yeah. And, you know, what if the next uh, wrong button to be pushed is the button to release a nuclear missile. Mm. How's it been for ICANN in the campaign to disarm the world with nuclear weapons and then this big hype with North Korea and Trump and nuclear weapons really coming back into the forefront and that fear factor coming in across the globe of there being a nuclear war? Um, How does ICANN approach that in terms of saying, I think it's time to disarm? Yeah, well, for us, it's important to emphasise that um, nuclear weapons are unacceptable regardless of which uh, country possesses them. Um, So the threat isn't just a threat from North Korea. um, And it's not just a threat from the United States, for that matter. Um, And this is a problem that existed under Obama as well as Trump. And so I guess um, the Trump presidency has really highlighted the... Um, problem of giving one person control over uh, several thousand nuclear weapons, but um, you know, the problem extends beyond the Trump presidency. And so we really want to use this moment to uh, educate people about the danger of nuclear weapons and uh, present a, a clear message against all nuclear weapons and uh, not just um, have as the result of this heightened awareness uh, greater pressure on you know, one country or another. So have you found it's almost helped the ICANN cause in a, in a lot of ways to raise that awareness and bring it back almost to the Cold War period where it was that flick of the switch could end and a civilization if not the world? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it has helped our cause as such, um, but uh, I guess it has uh, made people more aware of the threat and um, given us opportunities uh, more than we previously had to talk about uh, the threat. Um, But in terms of prompting actual disarmament, uh, we haven't seen that yet, Uh, but I hope that the treaty uh, will be a tool for advancing that. Mm. Yes. And um, I mean, one, I guess, has to spare a thought for the nuclear industry itself. Um, I mean, all the money that will be lost if everyone disarms. I mean, will, will people get a <laughs> lunch them, anymore? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, but, but I'll be, I mean, I'm, I'm making a joke in a way, perhaps a poor one, but... Um, but there is the issue that some people benefit from the existence of these weapons, and I think that adds to the challenge of getting people to divest. Yeah, this has been an issue particularly um, under discussion in the United Kingdom uh, where there has been a debate for a number of years over whether to renew their fleet of nuclear-armed submarines. 
Uh, unfortunately, the parliament decided a couple of years ago that they should go ahead with that. Um, I don't know whether they actually will go ahead with it in light of the new treaty. Um, and you know, given that there's uh, quite significant opposition within the UK Labour Party. Um, but um, the question was, what would this mean for jobs in the United Kingdom? Yes. Um, and you know, the campaigners there were very clear that this, um, you know, there are many more jobs to be made if that money were invested in um, healthcare or education or virtually yeah. any <laughs> other <laughs> industry. I mean, <laughs> this is um, yes. nuclear weapon work uh, yeah. is a lot of money um, for very few jobs. And mm. uh, and probably no gain at all mm. in, if you look at uh, the impact of these weapons. Yeah. Now, I'm, we're, we've got to wind up shortly, but I think ICANN has a number of events coming up uh, this year. This mm. year. Yeah, so can you tell yeah, us a bit about we're that? We're very lucky to have the Peace Boat coming to Australia. The Peace Yay. Boat is a Japanese uh, cruise liner that uh, has on board many activists for nuclear disarmament, um, as well as survivors from Hiroshima, Nagasaki, um, and some farmers from Fukushima as well. Uh, and um, they'll be visiting a number of uh, cities, starting in Fremantle, um, heading then to Adelaide, Hobart, Melbourne and Sydney. That's fantastic. Uh, when, will, a, when will they be in Melbourne? Do we have dates um, yet? We do have dates. Um, so on our website, icanw.org forward slash au, we have all of the information about uh, the events that are happening. Uh, so it will be late January to early February. Wonderful. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have to wind it up there, Tim Wright, from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And uh, again, congratulations on winning the Nobel Peace Prize. That's so exciting. And all the best with the work for this year. And uh, we can follow on the ICANN website all Thanks the latest. Thanks very much, Judah. Yeah, great for you to having you here. You're here on Wednesday Breakfast. Up next, we have curator Danny Weber on the phone. Danny Weber is the co-curator of an upcoming show at the Cocoa Butter Club, which I have just heard has sold out, which is showing at oh. Mel at, at the Midsummer. <laughs> oh, oh, and oh, <laughs> it's great. It is great. Um, thanks for joining us this morning, Danny. Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on selling out. It's great that people are getting out to support, but such a good show. Thank you. Yes, we're really excited. Um, we've been going since March last year, roughly every quarter. And I think people are really getting behind the mission. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's lovely. Could you just tell us um, a little bit about the mission for people who haven't come across the Cocoa Butter Club? Sure. So it started in London by Sadie Finner, the songbird. And basically the idea is it's a performance night showcasing people of colour and in Australia, we call it Indigenous and or people of colour because we really believe it's important to centre Indigenous folks um, with this visibility and this performance. So anyone can attend. Uh, we do, however, encourage people who are people of colour to sit right up the front and feel like the space is for them. And people who don't identify as that or who are white to kind of sit back and listen because specifically the MCs as well really talk about different oppression, different experiences, and it is a space where we can kind of turn norms on its head and have a safe space for people of colour, and it's really exciting. Mm. How did the show get transformed from the London experience now into the Australian Melbourne experience? Well, we still work pretty closely. Um, 
it, it got transformed in that someone, um, my co-producer Krishna, was living in London and they came here and they saw a big need for it here as well. There is a lot of talk of racial issues within the LGBT community and they definitely exist in the wider Australian community as well. Um, so having a performance night means we can celebrate and centre these folks and similar issues exist in London as well. And I think Cocoa Butter Clubs might start up in the US and around the world because it's a place we can celebrate the diversity in which we're creating art. Um, our performances don't have to be political or make a point, but they can be as well, and it's a space to be unapologetic. So I'd say that um, there's a lot of similarities between the two countries and around the world, and it's really great to see that kind of cross-continental sibling support. So the Cocoa Butter sounds, uh, Club sounds like very much like a club, so is it following the same show format as it would... Uh, in London, or is it obviously tailored a little bit here? Yeah, good question. It's different, I think. My understanding is in London, I, I haven't been there to see the Cocoa Butter Club yet. I can't wait. Um, it's kind of more regular. Um, however, and then it might be a bit smaller because of that as well. Um, however, for here, we have it quarterly, and it's kind of a way bigger event. It's usually held at the Spiegel tent, and we have sold out every time, which is really exciting. That's around, around 200 people. Um, and it's kind of heavily curated and really rehearsed and really polished. And not to say the London one isn't, but this is kind of a bigger production and that suits what's needed here in Melbourne. And then for Midsummer, it's been a very big production at the Arts Centre, which we're so excited about. Um, and we having even just having Midsummer, having a focused queer arts festival means that we can make a bigger production. Mm. What a festival it looks like. Can you tell us a little bit about the lineup, the the people who you have curated to come into the show um, and what the production looks like. For people who can't make it down there and for the people who do have a ticket, um, it sounds like a tantalising event. The challenges. Yes, for sure. And I, I would love to share. And if people don't have a ticket, they can follow us to hopefully come in the future. So each time I line up, it kind of takes people on a journey. It really isn't just stuck to one genre or one type of performance art. So we have um, Zelia Rose returning. She performed at the first ever Cooker Butter Club in Melbourne, and she's an incredible burlesque artist. She tours with Dita Von Teeves. She's won several awards, um, so she'll be um, returning to our stage. Um, we have uh, some um, a spoken word with an artist called Wani. We have a singer, Garrett Lyon. And we also have visiting from Sydney, um, a diva deaf drag queen, Krista Harrington, who actually signs the songs. You know, drag queens often like lip sync, you could say, and she signs the songs. We're really excited for that. Well, um, I could go on. We have like Raina doing this classical Indian burlesque, um, a dance troupe, um, and really excited for Mojo Juju, who's um, a futuristic soul funk singer. Yeah, As you can see, always it's really amazing. <laughs> she is. So, what a lineup! <laughs> Thank you. And it's also gender play boylesque. So, it's going to be so. You know, like it's going to challenge people, it's going to entertain people. And I think when people come to see art, they really open their hearts and minds. And that's when we can really create that empathy for different people's experiences. So for me, this is a form of activism and it's a form of helping create cultural change in society. Mm, and it's so great to hear that it is sold out and for Melbourne to be taking up the opportunity to, to see such an event and such a show. I was hoping, I was chatting to a friend about this show last night um, and we were wondering what is the difference, excuse my ignorance, between a burlesque show and a cabaret, or is it is there a burlesque component in a cabaret show? Oh, sure. I think cabaret is a useful term. It's quite an umbrella term. 
So you can expect if you go to a cabaret show to be seated as an audience member and to see different perform- different performance art, which could include burlesque. Whereas burlesque, in my understanding, I'm not a burlesque performer, but in my understanding, it, it follows similar um, elements and, and perhaps like tropes of perhaps, you know, sexiness, dance, um, costume. Whereas cabaret could be, it could be singing. It could be, um, it, it could be drag in a way as well. It could be something different. So uh, it's a bit of a more broad, expansive term and all our shows are very broad and expansive to celebrate the kind of diversity in which people of colour are creating. Ah, beautiful. And so, say if people can't get along to the Cocoa Butter and haven't been early enough to get into this show, where else would you point them for the Midsummer Festival? There's a lot going on. Yeah, great question. Um, so on the same night, Mama Alto has a wonderful showcase and she um, perform- has performed at a previous Cocoa Butter Club as well. Um, so that's um, at Chapel Off Chapel. I know she's almost sold out as well, though, so definitely get on that. I'm so glad to see the POC art selling out. It's really incredible. Mm. Um, and Raina, who's in our show, has another show in Midsummer called Bent Bollywood. Well, that, that's incredible. great to know. So we haven't totally missed out. There are some other opportunities. Thanks for asking that question, Patty. And Mama yes, Alto, for, exactly. for listeners, long-term listeners, um, would be familiar with that name. She was on the show not long ago last year. So it's a good opportunity oh, awesome. to see her live. Um, I'm very excited for you. I think it's great that you've curated this. And who was the other person who curated the show with you, Denny? Krishna. That's right, Krishna. Well, best of luck to you both and you all in the show. I would love to point people to buy tickets, but you've obviously done a very good job at doing that. <laughs> um, I hope people Thank get around you. the Midsummer Festival. It's a beautiful event. And we're going to try and end on a little song from Mojo Juju. And Wonderful. That's so great. <laughs> and we wish you the best of luck. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. You're tuned to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And here's Mojo Juju. Mojo Juju with Psycho there. If you're lucky enough to catch her and among many others at the Cocoa Butter Club this Friday, how lucky you. Yes, and doesn't she just sound fabulous? Just gets better and better. She really does. Um, Right now, though, on the line here at 3CR, we have Amy Maiden on the line um, from Australian Youth Australian Theatre for Young People. Um, Thanks for joining us, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, You're the general manager of this theatre company cohort um, collective, aren't you? It's got a long lineage, harking back to, I believe, 1963? Yeah, ATYP is about 53 years old now. That's very (laughs) impressive. (laughs) Very impressive. Legacy to walk into, you know, it's kind of there's a lot of big names who've come out of the company: Cole Kidman, Rebel Wilson, Rose Byrne, and and the company is so beloved by its its many participants that often some days I'm like, oh god, just keep the company alive. You know, oh when it yes, up, you know? and I mean, and it's quite an achievement because you know theatre companies and so many come and go. 
Yeah, well, it's a tough business. You know, we don't do this for the money. It's for, it's definitely for the love and for a company that's the size of ours and, and government funding being the way it is, it can be really challenging, yeah. Mm. So what looking at the website and coming as quite a novice into this but being drawn in from the report that you've just released, we'll get into that in a moment, but just for the listeners and myself, um, what does the company do? There's also workshops. It tries to breath between sort of entering into professional theatre, obviously with names in its in its catalogue like Nicole Kidman, but it's also trying to touch on um, community engagement and trying to get people into the space to just do it maybe for themselves, for their confidence, not necessarily to reach um, a professional level. Yeah, so essentially ATYP is the company's oldest and largest youth theatre company. So that means that we specialise in working with people in the ages of 26 and under. So anyone who's in our shows and on our stages is 26 years of age or under. And we really are focused on giving people that first step into their career in the performing arts or just giving them the experience. So we do professional productions, they tour the country, uh, but we also have a very large workshop program that allows anyone of any experience to be able to come in and just do a class and just have a go. And 10% of all of our workshop places are given away as scholarship as well because we just want to remove every possible barrier for someone who just says, you know what, I just want to try that. Because we believe, and now this report that we've had commissioned has shown, that an involvement and a participation in the arts is actually really good for the social and emotional health and well-being of young people. And we don't expect everybody to go out and become Nicole Kidman. That's not the end game. But it is to build you know, articulation, resilience, communication skills, because that builds better teachers, doctors, journalists. You know, and then we think that that's really important. Mm. So life is a stage very much there and it's just introducing people to that performance element of that stage. Um, what led you to this report? Probably an obvious question, but um, and how long has it been in the making for this special report in building mental wellness and agility through youth theatre? So it's taken us about a year to do, to do all of the work and from, from the idea of doing it. Basically, we were seeing it happen in our rehearsal rooms. I, you know, there's young people who, who would come, come to us year after year, and I personally was witnessing their own progress. And I started to wonder, is this just them growing up or is this actually the, 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 the growth in them also about participating in the arts? And it's not so much about kind of being on a stage and in front of people, but it's about getting involved. And a lot of the process that youth theatre companies especially do, and there's different companies around the country, it's not just us, um, is, is put young people's voice at the centre of the process. So we're asking them, what do you want to talk about? What are the things that you want to see on a stage? What are the stories that interest you? And are therefore valuing their voice in that? And we, I think that is the key to it all. So we started working with a company called Pattern Makers, who are a fantastic arts-based research company. We surveyed over 1,200 people who have been through our company recently or who are alumni from years ago, so we could try and track that that growth or the impact over a lifespan, which is, can be very difficult to do. So, so uh, excuse me, just, quite... so, just to clarify that, so you've actually looked at people who've been involved over over a number of years, not just people currently involved. Yeah, so we spoke to current participants, we spoke to parents of current participants, and we spoke to participants who are now well into their careers to see if we could join the dots between all of it. I see. So that's quite a significant piece of of work of research. Yeah, it took us it took us about a year, and the results. You know, it was quite scary because we thought, well, what if these results come back and say we do nothing, we don't do any good for humankind? You've got to you've got to take the chance, haven't you? You've just <laughs> exactly. Got to, yeah, otherwise, yeah, yeah. But then, 
the results that came back to us were were so surprising and so positive that I said to the researchers, "Is this correct? Is this right? Is this really true that this is the work that's been done?" So yeah, it's been tremendously exciting. Mm. Is there anything that's shown um, the changes within um, young people and and their mental approach or sort of just young people's approach to theatre over the generations did anything come through the study in that and how people and the difficulties or the challenges young people face um, as the years have gone on within this within the theatre's history well what is really what the study has really shown is that and and this was this was you know confirmed from people currently in the in the company and and you know long finished with us that it builds you know resilience self-confidence, teamwork, inspiration, motivation, self-awareness. But over half of them said that it indicated an, an improvement on their levels of anxiety. And that was a big one for us. And I think really important because you look at, you know, the, the mental health of young Australians on the whole, there's a, quite a crisis going on. And, you know, Headspace released some slight damning um, results about the, the, the status of mental health in young people in about 2016 which is one of also the reasons why we commissioned this study and so you know we're not saying that youth hit is here to save the world but it is here to help some people and it's one of many things that can help one of the interesting things that came out of it in terms of the lifelong benefits was that it was you know it sees growth in storytelling and and you look at how um corporates and industries are employing at the moment creativity is rated as one of the highest skills that people look for in recruitment and one of the other things that really excited me was that what they were saying is that it's encouraging people to look at the world from somebody else else's perspective. So it's teaching people how to empathise. And in the political climate that we're in right now, that's really important. You know, that theatre workshops and that involvement and participation, the active participation, makes them feel more connected to other people or people who come from different backgrounds. And I think that's a really exciting area to look at as well. Uh, do you think you could get some of our political leaders in uh, to get a little bit more empathy happening, do you think? <laughs> Maybe we should start a politician-specific workshop. They're a bit old, though. Yeah, yeah, I mean, thing, it would be, be extending should... your age group, I think, yes. But, uh, <laughs> Quite certainly significantly. Something but to maybe think about. That's, um, well, we are planning to take this research down to Canberra and, and, and talk with them there, with the Ministers for Health and Ministers for Education. You know, the current government doesn't currently have a Minister for Youth, and yet the suicide oh. rates in Australians are in young Australians, are the highest that they've been in 10 years. And so that is a conversation I am very excited to have. And if that means we run a workshop for some politicians who are slightly above the age of 26, then I'm definitely up for it. Well, you know, we're going to have you back on the show just to find out how that went if you end up doing it. But you're, I look I mean, you're, forward to reporting back. Positively. Yes, but you're right. I mean, youth suicide, you know, it goes back to the 90s, I think, when it became... Uh, you know, really came to the attention and possibly even before. Um, and uh, it yeah. sounds like it's it's gotten, we're having a no, another moment when things have just gotten worse. Yeah, well, the story that's been in the headlines this week about that lovely girl, Dolly, who took her own life. And, and it's, and it's it, you know, it, it, it's not going away. And it's something that people are very uncomfortable talking about and understandably why. But it's also something that I think we really need to be talking about. And I think, you know, if we're talking in the terms of government, then they do well to be looking at the younger generation because, you know, now 
Generation X, Y, and the Millennials are more than the baby boomers. So actually, it's a really important voting base for them as well. You know, that's yes. not as important as and, general and also mental what, health of our young Australians. But, yes, yeah, and, and you are talking about you know mental health broadly. You know, mental health benefits, and of course, suicide being just one end of a whole spectrum. So, you know, there's a lot of stages or places before people get to that point where, you know, some really good early intervention, good work can be done as in youth theatre, as you've described. Yeah, there were some amazing quotes that came out from some of the, um, the the adults and past participants who said that they really saw it as, you know, a preventative medicine. Now, we're not doctors. I'm not claiming that it's going to cure all ills. But, you know, to be able to build those communication skills and feel that your voice is valued opens up then naturally a space for young people to be able to voice when there's a problem as well. Big time. Um, so what's on the agenda for 2018 for the ATYP? <laughs> we are very busy. So we have a national tour rolling out that starts in April of a play called A Town Named Warboy, which is a partnership that we did with the State Library of New South Wales using diaries and letters from those young sort of 17, 18-year-old soldiers who went to war. Uh, and that's also supported by the Anzac Centenary Foundation. So that's touring the country nationally. We also have our workshop program that's rolling out and we also live stream our shows into schools for free. Uh, and so our first live stream is coming up next month, actually. And we provide... Um, and that's really about providing access to theatrical experiences for people in regional and remote areas who don't have theatres in their local communities. That's really important. Yeah, it is. So, uh, And we're really sort of forging ahead in the digital space as well, which is really exciting. Uh, so people should watch this space, especially if you're in the regional areas um, and all around the space. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Amy. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having the conversation. Our pleasure. You're tuned to Wednesday Breakfast. We were just speaking with Amy Madden, the General Manager for Australian Youth Theatre for Young People. And now coming up on the line, uh, we'll be speaking to Associate Professor Mehmet Ozal. But I just want just some background. Um, yesterday, the ABC reported that the United States has plans for a border security force in Syria. It would be led by the U.S. and it would, well, according to the report anyway, and include the Syrian Democratic Forces Alliance, which is dominated by the Kurdish uh, YPG. So Turkey and Russia have expressed strong opposition to this move, proposed move by the United States. And so uh, welcome to uh, 3CR Associate Professor Mehmet Ozalp. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, just to introduce you a bit more fully, you're an Islamic theologian and a, a public intellectual who's established the Center for Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University. That was in 2011, so uh, not that long ago. And you've written a number mm. of articles for The Conversation, I noticed, over the past year, looking at the politics um, in Turkey, Syria, the Middle East, a very broad range of topics, but very focused in the Middle East area. So, um, that's right. Yeah, so that, that's fantastic. And I, I found the articles incredibly helpful in understanding what is a very complex situation. And uh, I noticed just a year ago, almost to this very day, you published an article in the conversation entitled Syria, Russia and Turkey, the Uneasy Alliance Shaping World Politics. So I think that's, uh, you know, a year on, we've got more developments on that. So I think you're going to bring us up to date with what's going on. Yes, uh, that's right. Um, uh, it, it's been it, things have been changing on the ground pretty fast uh, in the region. 
And I think the alliance is still there, although it seems to uh, some of the rhetoric that comes out seems to contradict that. But in the background, that alliance is continuing. Do you uh, mean one, the alliance between uh, Syria, Russia and Turkey? Uh, that's right. There's broad agreement as to what is happening in Syria. Uh, but perhaps the first thing we need to establish is that uh, Assad, uh, Bashar Assad, the the current president of Syria, uh, that the opposition is the, trying to topple, uh, that's that's the cause of the civil war in Syria, yes. has has won. He has won in Syria the, the war. Uh, and now we're going into consol- consolidation of uh, uh, what is happening in Syria and what each of the parties involved really want. And so are we talking uh, about consolidation of Assad's power in Syria? Uh, that's right. Uh, he has just recently has attacked the Idlib area, which is in northwestern uh, Syria, uh, which is one of the last strongholds of uh, any opposition that is left. Uh, once they uh, acquire that particular control in that area, uh, uh, Assad has almost full control of Syria. Uh, IS is gone uh, with the American, mainly American and Kurdish, uh, um, you know, effort. They've been removed from Raqqa, their capital, and they've been chased across Syria. Now they don't exist as a political entity. They're just an insurgent or a terrorist group. I mean, it was so uh, interesting. Much. Excuse me, it was so interesting looking at your articles because there was one in April last year and. Almost each article, the situation had changed so quickly. You know, one would we be like in April, I think we were talking, talking about IS, and then, you know, then that's changed again. So I think just, you know, you're keeping track of all of this is, is incredibly uh, important and also helpful. So you're saying now Assad is, is consolidating power. Uh, yeah. That's right. And, and, uh, and he has largely has done that with the support of Iran, uh, Russia and the agreement of Turkey. Uh, Turkey is an important player, of course, in the region by virtue of being a, a neighbor to Syria. And that, this is what this is where that border security force becomes important because that's part of the uh, consolidation and what will happen in Syria for the long term. I think there is an intent of United States to protect the Kurdish region and the minority which is situated in northern Syria, bordering Turkey. Um, and, uh, and the objection to this really comes from Turkey itself. And because, what, what uh, is Turkey objecting to? Uh, Turkey is fearing that uh, if, if there is a protected region in north, northern Syria made up of Kurdish uh, people and uh, entities, uh, it could lead to... Uh, a similar breakup of Turkey itself, southeastern Turkey, because there is a large, large Kurdish uh, area in Turkey. Uh, if you re- if you just think about that, we have a northern Iraq situation where Kurdish region is autonomous, and last year uh, they have done a referendum of uh, independence uh, referendum, yes, which I actually remember. passed, which mm-hmm. has actually passed, yes, but they haven't implemented it yet. Uh, because the the conditions are not right, uh, and now we're having a, a, a similar region created in northern Syria, and uh, and it just follows that Turkey is fearful 
similar region can be established in some future, and eventually it would lead to an independent Kurdish state. And do you um, mean within Turkey, or do you mean adjacent to Turkey? Uh, when you're combining all these three regions, Northern and, and that Iraq, would be Northern the Kurdish, Syria, the Kurd aspiration, I would imagine. That's right. Uh, there is a, a Kurdish aspiration of an independent state, but they are pretty uh, patient and uh, taking their time. Uh, but the conditions and the the events that are, uh, it's really leading up to that. And, and perhaps some people, or according to the, the, the Turkish officials, they feel that there is a hidden agenda of a creation of a Kurdish state. So when they hear of, uh, of a, a border protection force being created, uh, th- that's what comes to mind. And, and, and also uh, being led by the United States. That's right. And the first uh, northern Iraq was also led by the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need to add to that uh, uh, the Turkish president, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he has issues at home. Uh, he needs to win 2019 presidential elections, which is a very important election for him. Uh, and at the moment, he doesn't have the majority. So he needs to have a nationalist alliance. And the nationalists are very anti-Kurdish. So he needs to be oh, tough I on see. Kurds. Yeah, so is he uh, appealing to a very kind of conservative um, group within uh, within Turkey? That's right. And and he needs to be tough on Kurds, or it needs to appear that way. Uh, and actually, the Kurdish, uh, the third largest party, uh, which is a Kurdish party in Turkey. The HDP? The lead, is that the HDP? Uh, yes, the leader is in jail. Uh, he's been in jail for about a year. Uh, and with, uh, we don't even know what the charges are, uh, what evidence there is for him. And he was quite popular, by the way. Well, and of course, so, and so therefore a threat to Erdogan. I mean, I remember the 2015 elections that was in June, I think, when uh, that party got into parliament, and there was great jubilation that, you know, now we can put down guns and now our uh, processes will be resolved in the parliament and uh, it wasn't long before Erdogan just moved in and uh, changed all that. Uh, exactly. And, and that loss uh, election of uh, Erdogan and his party uh, immediately led to a conflict uh, because he realized that uh, reconciliation, a peace process, uh, is against his own interests. So, but uh, a conflict situation is... And three months later, actually, they, they won... Uh, another election because of that. So he's going to follow that line. Uh, and uh, and also, uh, uh, there is a court case against Erdogan in the United States. Uh, there's an Iranian businessman, Reza Zarab. Uh, he's under trial uh, with a few others uh, for uh, you know overstepping the sanction against Iran um, and, yes. and corruption charges. So that's really very serious issues there. Yes, so, and, and he's... Oh, sorry, please come finish. finish yes, yeah, so uh, so for the President Erdogan, he needs to be anti-US, you know, anti-Kurdish, um, uh, in order to uh, ward off these kind of uh, challenges to his power and win that 2019 elections. So what we can... He may even go into Iraq... 
uh, it was a forces, Turkish forces, there's been actually some talks uh, claiming that he is protecting Turkey or preventing the establishment of a Kurdish region. Uh, and and that, there could be real fears there, but also uh, some of the political uh, uh, goals, uh, objectives of Erdogan himself. Yes, and, and I guess... You know, he's now increased his powers, hasn't he? Uh, the powers of the president uh, last year through a vote. Is that right? Yes, uh, he almost has uh, absolute powers. But but in 2019, uh, those powers will be constitutional uh, and, uh, and will come into effect. That's why 2019 election is very important for him. So, so they're not constitutional yet? They're not constitutional, but he is exercising them through emergency powers. Oh, still, I see. still, Turkey has a uh, emergency uh, state uh, because of the coup attempt uh, in 2016. Yes, uh, he hasn't relinquished those powers. Mm-hmm. And I think in in one of your articles, you talked about. In fact, I think the one you wrote a year ago, you talked about Erdogan's. I'm sorry, I'm not pronouncing his name very well. Erdogan's plans to mm. be a. Um, a kind of a, a leader of the the Muslim world uh, in the Middle East. Well, that's what he and his followers certainly prompt up. Uh, they're claiming that Turkey will become a leader of the Muslim world, and there are powers that are trying to prevent that. So anything that negative happens to Turkey is because uh, these external powers uh, do not want Turkey to be a leader in the world, our Erdogan leader in Middle East and in the world. And that is really convenient because you can explain any negative development with uh, with that uh, narrative. Yes, very, uh, very convenient. Uh, very convenient. Uh, and I think, has he been also courting Saudi Arabia? Well, yes and no. Uh, they have been, uh, but since the changes in Saudi Arabia, the where the Crown Prince has been effectively in power, yes, um, and this, the relationship has been strained because uh, Erdogan is very close to Qatar, uh, and uh, we oh. know the, that oh, yes. uh, Saudi Arabia is is very much against Qatar, and uh, and actually uh, there is something going on between in terms of the trade dynamics and breaking the sanctions against Iran. Qatar was an important element. Uh, where instead of dollars, gold was involved in the trade. Uh, and that, that's where it sort of set up the conditions for corruption. Uh, so so Erdogan is very protective of Qatar. Hence, um, uh, the, the relationship with Saudi Arabia is not very good at the moment. Okay, oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's such a fascinating region to, to look at and so complex, as you've, as you've just pointed out. What do you think will be the outcome of uh, Trump's, uh, this, or uh, suggesting anyway, that he's going to send, set up this border security force? What do you think will come of that? Yeah. I don't think Trump himself has any idea of what's really happening <laughs> in the region. <laughs> I, think, I, I think we all we all we think all, that. We all know that uh, he's too busy tweeting and watching Fox News. And, um, <laughs> uh, but I can imagine that there is a, a state machinery, uh, Pentagon or other departments in the in the administration would have uh, have some plans uh, and. Uh, 
And, and what it, it what appears is that uh, uh, U.S. has abandoned whatever political goals they have, with the exception of supporting the Kurdish region. Uh, that may they that may make sense to Trump to protect the Kurdish minority because there is a precedent with north north uh, northern Iraq. Uh, and uh, and also they are a useful ally. If anything would go wrong in Syria, uh, the Kurds have proven themselves to be a, a reliable uh, local force. Yes, they um, have. They've and, been very and, successful fighting IS, haven't they? Uh, that's right. So I think the uh, United States would want to keep that. They cannot trust Assad. They cannot trust Russia or anyone else on the ground. So I think uh, they would want to keep that uh, relationship going and somehow protect the Kurds um, and, uh, and make them a, a powerful, uh, autonomous uh, region uh, within a greater Syria, much like in Iraq. Uh, and that may suit well with whatever long-term goals they have for the region as well. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Associate Professor Mehmet Ozalp, for coming thank on you. this morning. And uh, certainly we'll be keeping an eye on the situation, it's partly through your contributions to the conversation. But also we might want you to come back on the show in a future, maybe in a few months' time just to bring us up to date again on what's been happening. Sure, that would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. Great to have you here. Bye-bye. name is Selva Coolidgelvin and I am fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being Well, welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. And um, coming up next is Bob Phelps. He's from Gene Ethics. And they put out a press release last month expressing concern that many new genetic manipulation techniques and their products may be deregulated if the gene technology regulators' proposals are followed. So we've been very concerned on three, at 3CR about this, and I know there was um, an interview yesterday about it, and we're going to now top up that or add more information to what's been going on with Bob Phelps. And he joins us on the phone, and I know it's just the end of your holidays, Bob. Good morning, Judith. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, at home today. Well, very much welcome because, uh, you know, there's that transition, isn't there, between kind of holiday and being back on the job. And I imagine, um, I mean, uh, after our conversation yesterday, I know you haven't been very far from the job for the whole time, I suspect. 
Well, there's a lot going on, that's for sure. Uh, the third review of the Gene Technology Scheme, which was first set up in 2000 among all the governments in Australia to regulate the genetic manipulation techniques and technologies, um, is under review. And um, unfortunately, because some new techniques have been developed and invented in the last five years which promise to manipulate any human being animal, plant or microorganism, uh, these uh, new techniques are knocking on the door. Of course, industry is keen to use them without regulation, and so there is a proposal to deregulate them at the moment, or at least some of them, and uh, to change the scheme in order to do that. So, so I guess the proposals are that they want to deregulate some of the newest technologies. Is that right? That's correct, yes. They've been invented over the last five years. Some may have already heard about them. CRISPR is one. Um, ZFN, uh, recombinant nucleic acid interference is another technique. You know, it sounds like science fiction, Bob. Well, it does sound like science fiction, but it's still the same old cut, paste or delete um, our genes. I mean, just just a little tweak here and there. Yes, the codes of life, which are the operating instructions for any living organism on Earth, are um, a fair game as far as the GM industry is concerned to give new characteristics to organisms so they can do new gee whiz things and uh, we can reinvent uh, the biological universe. So... I mean, one of the saving graces that we hear often is that, well, this has been very good for medicine and will help to address, um, you know, particular diseases. Um, so that's kind of a, a slight sweetener in what seems to be a pretty scary scenario. Well, uh, really, the old cut-and-paste techniques, uh, recombinant DNA, so-called, or transgenesis, which was invented really from the 1960s onwards, and was industrialized from the 1980s has really not produced the uh, wonderful innovations that were thought to be coming. And now with this new crop of uh, genetic manipulation, as I said, invented just in the last five years, we're getting the same promises, uh, the same scale of interference in the codes of life that was uh, talked about 30 to 40 years ago And uh, we have to now, I think, say that we want the same kinds of regulations that were put on those. Of course, industry is saying it held us up. We weren't able to uh, do things as quickly or as neatly as we would like to. But it did also prevent some uh, pretty serious damage being done along the way as well. So we are saying until there's a history of safe use with these things, until more evidence is available about the off-target effects of tweaking genes in literally any organism in the biological, on Earth, in, in the biological universe, uh, we'd better have some pretty serious regulations. Some, uh, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator needs to continue doing the work that has been done over the last 30 years to make sure that these things are okay before they go into our food supply, before they're released to the environment. Uh, before we start changing the human genome in ways that we can't predict. And so so where is this process up to? Like if people are very concerned about it and want to actually do something, 
Is is there still room for action? Is there still time for action to let the government oh, know we're not? We oh, don't very, very much so. There, there are three things going on. So the the scheme, the policy settings for the regulation of genetic engineering um, are in their second phase of discussion. We made our submissions just at the end of uh, December about that. But so he, so we were working hard all through Christmas by the sound of it? Yes, there will be another discussion paper coming up shortly. So um, the scheme is under review. That's the national uh, uniform regulatory scheme involving all the governments. Then the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, which is the federal regulator, is currently proposing, and we have to make submissions by the 16th of February, on uh, whether or not any of these new techniques and their products should be deregulated now before the industry really even gets going. So who can who can make decisions? End. Who can make? Oh, sorry. Who can make submissions to this by the 16th? Oh, anybody and everybody who wants to make a submission uh, should be doing so. And the best way to find out what's going on is to look at um, the Gene Technology Regulations Review. So right. googling that will take people to the page on the Office of Gene Technology Regulator website, and. Uh, you can do it from there. Of course, they can also consult us if they wish. Um, and right. then, I mean, because it is technically fairly complex, um, two well, things. What, issues, one, it shouldn't stop us. It shouldn't stop us from doing something. And secondly, uh, there are places to get that information by the sound of it. Well, the technology is complex, but the issues are simple. The issues are things like the precautionary principle. We shouldn't do high-risk things until we have the evidence. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It is pretty so straightforward. That's what we want people to say. Hang on a minute. We don't know enough about this. It has no history of safe use. Um, it's like putting any other unsafe product into the market before you've thoroughly tested it, whether it's a motor car, a new toothpaste or any other product. Absolutely, you know, or baby formula or, you know, baby formula. En endless numbers. And, uh, I mean, how does Australia compare with other countries in this? Well, we are right in the vanguard of wanting to, to change the law. We would be the first country to deregulate uh, these new techniques and their products. That, and that's, that's not a good place to be. Because that's, not, that's not a good place to be at all. That's that concerning. Not. A number of European countries have already said that everything should be regulated. Of course, the Americans are discussing it. They're a very deregulatory um, environment there. And, of course, the pressure's really on. And industry's saying, yes, let's follow the Yanks. Uh, let's not have those stringent regulations that the Europeans propose. But, of course, a lot of our food products... Um, in particular, um, and a lot of these things will be animals and plants on farms, go into European markets, uh, into Asia, where they're also of a mind to say no at this stage. So, and, so it might uh, ruin our markets. Exactly. We're saying there are market issues, um, and the regulators are now going away from their core values of human health, safety, and the environment, and are starting to look at markets, and we're saying, hang on, our markets are at risk here, and people should be speaking up about that as well, uh, particularly in the food area. Food Standards Australia New Zealand hasn't done so yet, but shortly we'll begin reviewing what its rules will be about genetically engineered 
foods using these new techniques. So there's another process that will beginning, uh, be beginning in the next two or three months, I expect. So it's another uh, process for us to keep an eye on, and if we get in early, we may have a, an opportunity to do something. Sure, sure. So folks are very happy, um, very um, welcome, should I say, to give us a bell on 1300 133 868 or send uh, for further details also to our uh, email address, info at geneethics.org. Geneethics has got two E's in the middle, remember? Gene, G-E-N-E, ethics, geneethics.org. So um, be in touch. We're trying to recruit support for a precautionary approach to the new genetic manipulation techniques, and we need every person on deck uh, saying, yes, hang sounds, on a minute. Sounds like, that mm. sounds like that's absolutely important. Well and truly. Um, and we'll try and keep in touch here at 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and run through this and keep that campaign going and hopefully keep the information going out there. It's something that people need to get behind. It sounds dangerous not only to our health industry and many other things so untested. so bob phelps thank you for getting up and i think you're about to head for a drive now you've got a bit of a drive ahead of you yes we're going for it thanks very much judith and patrick and look forward to talking to you about this again because it's not going away we've we've just had our 30th anniversary at gene ethics and uh we're planning on another few years of effective advocacy and campaigning on the public's behalf as well but okay. We need, we so, need folks on, on deck um, yes. doing their part as well. Well, thank you so much. And we've just run out of time, Bob Phelps. So uh, Bye for now. Bye for now. Good work, Bob Phelps. We'd like to first of all thank all our guests who have come on today. They've done a great job welcoming us back into the groove here at Wednesday Breakfast here at 3CR Radio. But up next, we have Stick Together. Stay tuned throughout the day. There are some great programs. We will see you next week. Thanks for your ears. Oh. <laughs> wobbly <laughs> wobbly old hey hey maybe that's a good just moment to just say 3cr.org.au if you want to donate to 3cr and help our wobbly studio get onto it <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>